Good evening, good evening. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. It's a Wednesday evening in New York and throughout the world, actually. Uh, maybe not throughout the world, actually. In the Eastern Time Zone, it's Wednesday evening. Other places, it's different. I don't want to get into the minutiae, but we're glad you're with us right here on the Progressive Radio Network. Lots of things going on, and we're going to talk about uh, a number of different stories this evening. We're going to start out we're talking about Ferguson, Missouri. You remember Ferguson, Missouri. It's coming up on a year since Michael Brown was killed by police officer Darren Wilson uh, in the city of Ferguson. And we don't have to recount here what happened in the wake of Michael Brown's death. We do, however, now have the opportunity to look back. And there's going to be, of course, a number of demonstrations that are going on uh, or that will be going on in Ferguson this coming weekend to mark that anniversary. And New York Times had a pretty big article um, headlined, in, a, in years since searing death, Ferguson sees uneven change. Well, yeah, there have been changes that have gone on in Ferguson. There's a black interim police chief. Uh, there are more folk, more black folk on the city council. And um, some people are heralding that as evidence of change. And it is changed. I mean, you can't you can't really get around that part of it. However, what some people who were quoted in this article are saying is that there are fundamentals in Ferguson's makeup that have not changed, specifically the relationship between black citizens and the Ferguson Police Department. I believe they have one more African-American on the police force now. I think it's five out of 50 rather than four out of 50. They're still trying to recruit more black officers but they say that's a slow and cumbersome process. I don't know why. Uh, in the city of 21,000, I'm sure there's some black folks that would love to make a living doing community-based policing as opposed to the policing that led to Michael Brown's death. Um, this is, and, and I've said this before and I'm going to say it again, what happened in Ferguson is a microcosm of what is going on between law enforcement and black communities all over America, here in New York, in Tennessee, in Cleveland, all over this country. And the ones I've just talked about were situations where young African-American men, and in a couple of cases women, were killed by law enforcement, unarmed African-American men and women, killed by law enforcement. Now, when we talk about the changes that Ferguson uh, has made, and the, the anniversary of Michael Brown's death actually is this coming Sunday. And, uh, you know, there, there are people who are still outraged, and rightfully so. Not just at the fact Michael Brown died, because he didn't have to, but also at the fact that a grand jury, I believe a grand jury that was rigged to exonerate the police officer involved, 
That's just me. That's just my opinion. Uh, the fact is, there was no justice in the death of Michael Brown, which is why the violence that took place in Ferguson took place for so long. What amazes me about how the political class reacts to situations like Ferguson and Baltimore and other places where there have been uprisings is this whole, I, I never knew it was this bad. I never knew black citizens were this angry. I never thought black citizens were this upset. Uh, Claire McCaskill, senator from Missouri, Democrat, mind you, quote, this was a real tearing of the fabric. A lot of pent-up frustration has now really come forward, and that doesn't get well in 12 months. Well, she's right about that. This isn't going to happen overnight. It's not even going to be over 365 nights. It's going to be years. She's right. She's absolutely right. It's pent-up frustration. The question is, how come nobody saw the pent-up frustration before it boiled over? Why did it take the death of Michael Brown to bring what few changes have taken place in Ferguson to that community? Why does it always seem to take someone's death before the police department in a certain city, whichever city you want to name, uh, starts wearing body cameras? Or, And by the way, there's a, a host of videos that you can access on YouTube. I'm not going to go into too many of them here, but a host of videos that you can access of lesser-known stories of police violence against unarmed black folks. But we'll leave that where it is for now. The fact of the matter is law enforcement has been painfully slow, painfully slow in changing the way it does what it does in communities of color. And that should come as no surprise to people because the fact of the matter is that law enforcement has been lauded through the years. And this is not to say all cops are bad, because I have friends who are cops, so please don't misunderstand me. But the way they do their business has never seriously been questioned before. Yes, there have been situations after and the litany of people who have been killed in New York as long as you're on. But the fact of the matter is that communities have not yet had the kind of clout to say you have to change fundamentally the way you police our community. And there have been numbers of people. I remember a guy from many years ago, his name used to be Lenny Weir. He became, uh, uh, oh God, now his name slips me just that quick. Um, but he was a cop, testified before the NAP Commission. That was like a, a 40 some odd years ago. And his whole thing was, Black police in black communities. Now, that's not necessarily going to happen, at least not in most communities across the country. But the fact of the matter is there has to be black input in the way black communities are policed. And until you get to that point, there's always going to be another situation where a match is lit, and I'm talking about figuratively now, a match is lit, and communities blow up. You know, people will say, as does Wesley Bell, who's a newly elected city council member, African-American, uh, in Ferguson. He represents the neighborhood where Michael Brown died. He said, look, I want to be clear in no uncertain terms. This city has improved. Well, yeah, it has. You got more black folks in positions of power. But, you know, 
you can talk to people in communities all over America where black people have achieved positions of power, elected officials, police chiefs, etc. And it's a mixed bag. Some people would argue, yes, things have improved. There's not the kind of reckless law enforcement in some communities that there used to be. Because you have to understand, if you look at the history of policing in America, uh, the fact of the matter is that reckless law enforcement was once the norm in this country. And not just visited on black people, certainly visited on black folks disproportionately, but white folks used to get their heads split open or used to get shot or didn't used to have justice in situations where people were hurt, killed, whatever, injured. The fact of the matter is policing must change. And Ferguson is the bright light being shown throughout the rest of this country that you do have to make change. You have to start that process. And Claire McCaskill's right in that it's a painful process and it's a relatively slow process. The fact of the matter is people who think it's going to happen overnight are fooling themselves. Of course, there was a lot of damage that took place in Ferguson and the recovery from that damage, much like the recovery from Hurricane Sandy and the uh, uh, recovery from Hurricane Katrina, the recoveries have been uneven, like the American economy. The recovery, such as it is, has been uneven. That's the nature of the beast. But as people begin to empower themselves, as people begin to say to themselves, you know what, this is not good enough, that's when you're going to start seeing real change. Now, we can look, changing stories real quickly, at the borough of Brooklyn, not far from where I'm speaking. Another headline. Another exoneration in Brooklyn brings total since last year to 14. In this case, it was a young man named Joel Fowler, who was just about 18 years old in 2008. He was arrested and charged with second-degree murder in the death of 24-year-old Dwayne Smith in Flatbush in 2007. He was sentenced in 2009, was Joel Fowler, to 25 years to life in prison. Yesterday, the chief of the district attorney's office conviction review unit described in state Supreme court, the quote multifaceted confluence of issues that led to the wrongful conviction of Mr. Fowler, including ineffective counsel an unreliable witness and a false confession from Joel Fowler. Says Mark Hale quote, this confluence in which the jury's fact finding process regarding this case was so corrupted that we cannot have any confidence in their verdict. Joel Fowler was set free. He's the 14th person in Brooklyn, wrongly convicted to be set free. And that's a credit to the DA of Brooklyn, Ken Thompson. Now, to be fair, the conviction review unit was created by his predecessor, Charles Joe Hines, who took and it continues to take a lot of heat in terms of the way his office handled serious cases, homicides. The fact of the matter is the Conviction Review Unit has 10 full-time prosecutors, three full-time investigators, 
works on 100 to 120 cases at any time. The most common factors, and I'm quoting from the Times article, in the exonerations are consistent with those in Mr. Fowler's case. The prosecution's reliance on unreliable witnesses, a failure to turn over evidence, which I thought was illegal, but that's just me, and the ineffectiveness of defense counsel. Of the 14 convictions to be vacated since Ken Thompson took office, Joel Fowler's is the first to come after the year 2000. The others occurred from 1985 to 1997. So having Ken Thompson as DA, and full disclosure, he used to work with my sister, not in, not in the DA's offices, but well before that. But having Ken Thompson in that job has, in fact, made a difference. Now, you might want to ask yourself, how did Deuce did 14 people get locked up for extraordinary periods of time? Joel Fowler, 25 to life. Several of the others that were locked up were locked up for 25 to life. Some of them did 25 years. 27 years, 28 years in prison. How does that happen? And, you know, you can't, well, you can actually, you can question the efficacy of the criminal justice system in general. I would like to see, I haven't heard all that much about the other four DAs and the other four boroughs of New York City being as aggressive as Ken Thompson has been in reviewing convictions with an eye toward perhaps just a little bit delivering justice to people who may have been wrongly convicted and wrongly incarcerated. You can't get, you cannot get the time you do in prison back. You can't. Somebody who goes in at 18 and does 25 years is going to be 43 years old. I submit, and and I know that there have been settlements in many, many cases, in some cases for several millions of dollars, but I, I submit to you that you cannot put a dollar value on a human life that has been locked up during its prime years, man or woman. I don't think you can put a dollar value on that. The city does because, you know, they're getting sued up to wazoo with these things. But the fact is, when you take away the flower of a person's life like that, wrongly, that's deep. And it demands some systemic review. And Ken Thompson is not the only person who, Ken Thompson actually is doing this, but others need to do the same. Take a long look at some of these cases. Now, there are people who are locked up who deserve to be locked up. You murder somebody, you deserve to be locked up. But if you are convicted wrongly, and, you know, we have a system of justice that frequently, too frequently, in my judgment, simply says, well, a jury convicted him, that's that. And in states with a death penalty, like Texas, for example, they don't care how much evidence in some cases is produced that would tend to exonerate somebody on death row. It's like, I don't care what you have, a jury convicted him, and he's going to die, or she's going to die. Fortunately, we don't have, we have the death penalty in New York, but only for certain crimes. And we do have the opportunity 
certainly in Brooklyn anyway, to review cases where there is some evidence that a person was wrongly convicted. 14 people. Now, that may not seem like a lot in a city of 8.4 million, but it's 14 too many, no matter how you try and slice it. So congratulations to Joel Fowler. Congratulations to the people who worked to free him because it wasn't just Ken Thompson or the Conviction Review Unit. There were others who worked on his case who believed that Joel Fowler did not deserve to be behind bars. And today, he is not. Shifting gears again, just a little. You know, we're going all over the place today. And I know my good friend Harriet is going to part company with me on this because she's already done it. But President Obama has rolled out a campaign, both public and private, to try and sell the Iran nuclear deal. And there have been many ads on television. Some of you may have seen some of them which say, we deserve a better deal. I don't know how they think they're going to get a better deal, but that's what they say. Now, I, unlike Harriet, I haven't read all 159 pages of this. It's now publicly available, and I probably will avail myself of reading the actual deal. I do know this. If, for some reason... This deal does not go through, and Congress is sounding like they may very well try to squash it. If it does not go through, you will be handing Iran the very nuclear weapon that you say you don't want them to have. And we had a discussion a bit ago about some of the issues surrounding a country that's detonated a nuclear weapon telling other countries who can and who cannot have. A nuclear weapon. But if you take as a given that Iran should not have a nuclear weapon because they would use it to threaten Israel, and there's evidence to that effect, then the question becomes, how do you negotiate some kind of deal that keeps nuclear technology and nuclear weapons out of their hands? Now, the ads that I've seen say it's a broken 20 treaties, they're the number one sponsors of terrorism. Look, what that says to me is that there are people who want no deal at all. I'm beginning to think Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel doesn't want a deal, period. President Obama went to American University earlier today, and he explained to the extent he could in the time he had, and to defend that agreement, which, by the way, was reached last month, which I hope means that at least some members of Congress have actually read it. In other words, some members of Congress will be equal to what our friend Harriet's done and actually read the agreement. Harriet opposes the agreement, but opposition is not enough. You've got to come up with something that you can get the Iranians to sign off on, by the way, you know, America saying we don't like this deal and this is what we want isn't going to get it done. Negotiation means or implies talks between two parties, not one. And believe me when I tell you, America backs out of this thing. 
The Iranian hardliners will be cheering in the streets of Tehran because they'll say, rightly or wrongly, that America is not, a, not trustworthy, that America made a deal and then reneged. And Iran will then, <clears throat> in my judgment, step up its efforts to develop the technology that would eventually give them a nuclear weapon. Now, maybe there are people who want that so they can then start a military action, bomb the sites or whatever to try and destroy the technology. But if you are going to come up with opposition, and there have been a number of Democrats, including Congresswoman Grace May from Queens, who have said they oppose the deal. Okay, I, I take them at their word. I consider them to be honorable people, but come up with something better. Come up with something that's going to make sense. Otherwise, you're going to create a situation where what you say you don't want becomes exactly what you get. Now, from a tactical political standpoint, President Obama is sending out members of his team to sell this deal. Numbers of folks, cabinet members, the energy secretary and others. Energy secretary, I'm not sure quite why, but they've decided to dispatch the energy secretary. The president is going on a vacation, I think up in the vineyard for a couple of weeks. And that's cool, I guess. There's a part of me, however, <clears throat> that says, if you really want to get this done, you postpone the vacation and you do the work. You do the work. You put the capital on the line. Don't leave this to other people. You sell it. Now, there are going to be people who are going to be totally unconvinced no matter what. And by the way, not all of them are Republicans. There are Democrats who oppose the deal. I don't hear them saying, well, this is what I think ought to take the place of the parts of the deal I object to. And of course, none of them are going to go and negotiate with the Iranians. You know, Iran is, is... the latest in a long line of straw dogs. Remember, it was Iraq back in 2002 and again in 1990. America has always had straw dogs, people or nations that we have decided are part of an evil empire or are somehow less than us and undeserving, not just the nuclear technology, undeserving of all sorts of things. The trouble with American foreign policy is that we support, in many instances, with our dollars and with our tacit agreement, regimes that are in many cases just as bad, just as bad. And, you know, we fumble and we, we come up with all kinds of bureaucratic 
double talk about why. This agreement was forged over a pretty long period of time. It was forged not without a great deal of back and forth and certainly not without tensions between the two countries. I still maintain, and again, I had this discussion with Harriet, I think the Iranians are not crazy enough to develop a nuclear weapon for use against Israel, the United States, or anybody else, certainly not in the region. There is a problem with that thinking. Well, they'll use it on Israel. To use it on Israel, the Israelis bomb them right back. And the United States would probably bomb them as well. No one at this point is prepared to use, in my judgment, a nuclear weapon on another. If anybody was going to use a nuclear weapon against another country, it would be the Indians and the Pakistanis who apparently hate each other's guts, and both of them have nuclear technology and nuclear weapons. Ever wonder why neither side has used one against the other? North Koreans purport to have nuclear weapons. They don't use them against the South. There's a reason for that. No matter how crazy we may think the North Korean government is, they're not that crazy. They're not. And neither, in my judgment, at this point, are the Iranians. So I would urge people who oppose the deal, and I don't, like I said, uh, Harriet is a good person. Others, Steve Israel, Nita Lowy, and others, these are not bad people who oppose the agreement. We just have a parting of the ways over this issue. And I say to people who, who oppose it, come up with something better. And by the way, the reimposition of sanctions is not going to, or, or, or strengthening the sanctions that already exist, which some of which would be, not all of which, but some of which would be relaxed under this agreement, it's not going to do the job. It is not going to do the job. All you do by that is create a situation where the hardliners in Tehran are emboldened where they can jump up and say, see, I told you. And I don't think we necessarily want to give them that card to play. We'll see. Congress comes back from its break, <laughs> one of many, on September 8th. And it has until September 17th to vote on a resolution supporting or rejecting that deal. We shall see. You know, <clears throat> this weekend may be the first anniversary of Michael Brown's death, but it's also, this week, the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We'll get into that in a minute, but uh, I think we have Kamal is on the line and wants to talk about Iran and the nuclear issue. Kamal, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing, my brother? Doing well, man, doing well. It's been a long time. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I just want to say a couple of things, Mark. First of all, you know, the hypocrisy is nauseating, man. Uh, first of all, human beings are not mentally stable enough to have nukes. Uh, anybody. No one should have nukes. Uh, but I Iran has I never said they wanted nukes. Uh, Iran has never said they wanted nukes. Matter of fact, they signed a non 
Nuclear Proliferation Act years ago. Israel never signed that. Matter of fact, Israel has nukes, and no one ever talks about that. I find it amazing that it's, it's almost like a, 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 no one can even talk about that issue, that they have, there's already nukes in that region. So what, what, is, the, what is the big deal here? Well, um, first of all, I hope. What you have uh, to realize this tomorrow week, is the Israelis week, tomorrow, have never, ever. Uh, the only, the only country that's ever used nukes. We know they do, but they never admitted it. So they have what they call plausible deniability here. But I guarantee you this: were the Iranians to get the technology to a certain point, the Israelis would use what weapons they have to try and stop them. Yeah, they already have them. But, but how come no one talks about Israel already has nuclear weapons and no one has monitored any of those? Well, no. The, why the, is that off the table? Because you, you can't monitor what people won't admit to having. That's why. Yeah, he, he, wait, wait, wait a minute. But Iran said that they never had them and never was going to have them. How come they're monitoring Iran? Iran doesn't have them either. They said they no, never Iran, wanted them. Iran, in fact, does not have them. It doesn't exactly. have them. So, so how come there's sanctions on Iran that doesn't even want them when there's nothing on Israel that already has them? Everybody knows they have them, but because there's a quick talk, I mean, no one is talking about it. No one can talk about it. things in and out of the government. That there's no, that only one that talked about it was the woman who passed away. I forgot her name, Elizabeth. Uh, someone asked uh, President Obama one time at a press conference. Uh, about oh, Israel oh, having I know what you're talking about, yeah, uh, from UPI, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah see, here's away. the thing, Kamal, and I, I said this last week, I don't, I don't know if you heard it, but I'm going to say it again. If you look at this whole issue from the perspective of countries outside the United States, all right, take America out of this, take the Israelis out of it, take the Iranians out of it, there is a fundamental flaw in American logic. All right. If you look at it from an outside perspective, and that flaw is this, this country, not just this country, because other countries were involved in making the deal, but this country purports to tell another country that they cannot have nuclear weapons. But who's the only country on the planet that has ever used nuclear weapons? Exactly. The one that had the anniversary of Mars for Hiroshima and then Nagasaki and two days later. Because of this country that used it on those two con- on those uh, two capitals. Well, yeah, and, and we're comfortable cities. with the rationale that was given at the time as to why it was used, why those two places were nuked like that, saved thousands of lives, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is, if you take everybody else out of the equation and you look at this and you say, "Wait a minute, why is America? Why does America?" The one country that has used nuclear weapons, how do they get to tell everybody else what they can and cannot have? Well, in the street, we call it the Bulgar effect. <laughs> well, yeah, because we're the most powerful nation on Earth, and we can justify yeah. anything we do. Yeah, it's the wolf man. Well, hey, you know how it is. Come on, got to run, man, but thanks for calling, all right? My brother, thank you very much. All right, you take care. Have a good night. It's 632, 28 minutes before the hour, 7 o'clock. My friend Harriet's on the line. We're going to go to her in a moment. But right now, we're going to take a very quick break. It's 28 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show, heard each and every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Progressive Radio Network.
27 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. And uh, some folks want to talk about Iran and nukes and other issues. And we've got our good friend Harriet from Bayside next in the queue. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Mark. I was going to talk about something else, but since you mentioned my name so many times, <laughs> and there was another call on this uh, subject, I, I figure I had to. So, Go first ahead. of all, Grace Meng is my congresswoman. Mm-hmm. And she's and, a good person. She's a good congresswoman. What? She's a good congresswoman. It's a very good congresswoman. Now, uh, like I said, I advise everyone to read the agreement. Yeah, it's Another actually thing. up on the White House website, I believe. Yeah, and it's also on the Washington Post, which is where I read it. Mm-hmm. In tiny so little you, print, which means exactly I may have to read oppose? it again. What exactly do you oppose in the agreement? That they can get some of the money back, and that what I would like is two other things in the, that they stop exporting terrorism, and now, they say... What terrorism have they exported where? Well, who do you suppose funds Hamas and Hezbollah? They are, are among many that support Hamas and Hezbollah. They're not the only ones. Uh, basically, and the Assad regime. In Syria? Yes. Well, they've had a long-standing relationship with Assad. That's not new. Yeah, but they fund him. They yeah, and we him funded his opposition, didn't we? What? Didn't we fund his opposition? Uh, we didn't get to. No, and we the did. The opposition that we should have funded was when. The, do you remember when there was an election, and they wanted, and the people voted for someone named Musavi, and Ahmadinejad won, and the um, the results weren't all that accurate. Wait a minute. Are you talking about in Iran or in Syria? No, I'm talking about Iran. Oh, That's I what we should have funded. Because, I mean, in, in, first of all, Syria was a double-edged sword. America did, in fact, support some of the rebel movements in Syria. The problem that they had was that they yeah, looked the up so one day bad. and realized that, the, that those rebels that we were supporting were committing some of the same atrocities that Assad was. Which is not good either. Exactly. It's, I mean, there's no real movement uh, for uh, democracy, for real democracy. What I, the other thing I wanted to say was Israel is what they call a one-bomb country. What do you one mean? Nucle- one nuclear bomb will destroy Israel. Well, I, see, my guess it's is... Small. That, that uh, one nuclear bomb will, de- will destroy many, many countries on this planet? Uh, not Iran. Oh, I wouldn't bet the store on that. Iran's big. It, it's big, yeah. Territorially, it's big. But you bomb yeah. Tehran, you destroy Tehran, you destroy Iran. Mm, you you destroy their system of governance. You got nothing uh-huh. after that. Well, what I really wanted to talk about was um, the debate tomorrow. Oh, I was getting to that. <laughs> Let me tell you That's something, That's what Mary. I really wanted to talk about. Well, I see, I really think, and, and for those of you who don't know, 
let me run by you real quickly who's in the main debate and who's out of the main debate. In the main debate are Christie, Rubio, Carson, Walker, Trump, Bush, Huckabee, Cruz, Paul, and Kasich. Out of the main debate, Perry, Santorum, Jindal, Fiorina, Pataki, Graham, and Gilmore. Now, I can tell you, Harriet, I believe there was a much more fair way of doing this, short of empowering the pollsters, who, by the way, make goo gobs more money now that they've been able to engineer this. What do you think would have been a fairer way to do it? Put 17 straws in a hat, pick eight for one debate and eight for another, period. Um, Regardless of polling. Well, Harry, we're a year out of the election. How in the deuce do you end up saying, you know, uh, I think it was the Washington Post had a very interesting kind of graphic that showed who would have been in and who would have been out going back to the end of May. And not all the same people were in and not all the same people were out. Including, especially he who must not be named. Who? Trump? You know who? Yeah, Trump had 4.2%. He would have been in, but he had 4.2% in May. Now he's got like 23.4%. Yeah, heaven help us. Yeah, but I mean, it would to me, he it would be have been much more fair. Because obviously you can't put 17 people on a stage. No, you can't. No, yeah. you can't. So I'm going to watch both debates. You're going to watch both of them? Yep. You sure you're going to be able to stay awake? <laughs> well, on I, I any you, I'm, Republican I'm debate, it's difficult to stay awake, but I'll make sure I do. See, I, I'll tell you, Harriet, what my problem is. Yeah. It's like 17 people trying to outright wing each other. And I want to see a Democratic debate. Oh, there'll, there'll be one. I mean, and look, if what Joe Biden will does Joe Biden do? Run, if Biden decides to run a four-sided debate with Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, um, uh, uh, Mal- uh, I keep thinking Walter O'Malley, but he was the Dodgers, uh, the uh, Martin O'Malley from Maryland, and Joe yeah. Biden, that'd be a great debate. There's another one, uh, Lincoln Chasey from Rhode Island. Has he announced? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, him too then. Yeah. Yeah. Because put them, put they, were on, together. they were in a forum, and I watched them in a forum. Who'd you think did, who do you think did the best? You know me. Hillary. Oh, you're a Hillary fan, are you? I've been a Hillary fan. Ever since she be ever since she ran for the United States Senate, you I think she's going to win this time fan. around. What? Do you think she's going to win this time around? Yes. Okay. Harry, got to run, but listen, thanks a lot as always for calling, huh? Okay. Have Bye-bye. a good night. Bye bye. Bye bye. Twenty minutes before the hour of seven o'clock. <clears throat> some some thought provoking stuff there. Uh, stuff you got to think about just a little bit. Um. The Voting Rights Act, 50 years old, a half century old this week. And those of us who were old enough, I was a kid, but old enough to remember the blood, sweat, and tears, the four girls in the Birmingham church, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, Medgar Evers, 
and others who died so that black people would have the right to vote. This is a significant anniversary. But I'm going to tell you a little story. Because some years ago, when the Voting Rights Act, I think it was on two successive occasions, was up for renewal, I was unfortunately one of those people who said, ah, don't worry about it. There's no way in the world anybody's going to try and eat away at black people's voting rights. Now, now there were a substantial number of people in the black community who stood up and said, if we don't make sure about this, somebody is going to try and roll back our voting rights. And I thought to myself, there's no way you're crazy. They're not going to try anything that stupid. I was wrong. <laughs> okay. I was 100% wrong. The efforts to abrogate black voting rights continues in 2015. Of course, we've had in 2013, the United States Supreme Court, five justices of the court, conclude that there was no longer a need for the most powerful tool in the Voting Rights Act. Actually, I think they struck down two parts of the Voting Rights Act. And as a result, the Voting Rights Act still stands. But this notion that the Voting Rights Act has done its job, so it's time to move on to something else, still pervades the American political dialogue. And as people say, ah, it's no problem anymore, blacks can vote. Look at how many blacks are in the Congress and in this and in that. Look at Alan West. (laughs) Look at Ben Carson and look at Byron Kane. Here's the fact of the matter. There are states all over this country, too many states all over this country, who with virtually non-existent evidence of voter fraud have tried to roll back voting rights. Not just black people's voting rights, young people's voting rights, senior citizens' voting rights, voter ID laws, this, that. Uh, I forgot what state, I think it was Texas, that said you could show a gun license, but you couldn't show a college ID. And I think theirs just got struck down, as a matter of fact. Thank God. The Voting Rights Act is needed. The two provisions that were struck down by the Supreme Court are needed. Unfortunately, there's no chance the current Congress, as currently constituted, will put those two uh, provisions into a law, pass it, and have a president sign it. Should happen, not gonna, not with the Congress, with Republican majorities in the House and Senate. And the people that would gut the provisions of the Voting Rights Act, the people who would snatch away, snatch away black voting rights, do so with a straight face saying, no, no, this has nothing to do with race. No, no, this has, haven't you heard? They've been busing Mexicans across the border to vote in elections. By the way, a story that proved to be a complete and utter falsehood In other words, they lied like rugs. But this is how they go about it. Same way they lie on Planned Parenthood. Same way. Well, they're selling body parts. Nonsense. Nonsense. But you see, once, and and I, I, I give the Republicans credit for this, 
once they have a story, they stick the hell to it. You can't convince people, and we'll have more on the Planned Parenthood thing before the show's over. But you can't convince them that there wasn't widespread voter fraud that demanded voter ID. Now, nobody ever, they, they're not stupid enough to say that that voter fraud is occurring in black communities or that voter fraud was taking place because of early voting or some of the other things that they managed to get uh, ALEC-induced state legislatures to cut, cut aside. Same-day registration, all that sort of thing. It's fraud. It's fraud. No, it's fear of a Democratic majority that has them do this. And look at the Congress. On that level, they've uh, succeeded. And Ari Berman has a history of the law called Give Us the Ballot. And he said that the Voting Rights Act's revolutionary success, quote, spawned an equally committed group of counter-revolutionaries whose aim it is to dismantle those hard-won gains of the civil rights movement. Because, of course, there are no poll taxes today, no literacy tests, but there are voter voter IDs, cutbacks to early voting, and same-day registration. And they know, they know that this disproportionately affects black voters. Now, it also ought to be noted that it disproportionately affects young voters. But young voters at a point, and I'm not, I, I hate to talk about any group of people as a group. I don't like to stereotype anybody, black people, young people, gay people, anybody. But young people are preoccupied with other things. Some of them great, some of them not so great, but they're preoccupied with other things. It doesn't dawn on them that the right to vote is as crucial as it is to a 70-year-old black woman in the Mississippi Delta who's been voting ever since the Voting Rights Act and suddenly finds she has to have some kind of ID. She doesn't have a car, so she doesn't have a driver's license. So she's got to figure out some other way to get voter, a voter ID, a state-issued ID, and the nearest place for her to get is 40 miles from where she lives. These are the things that make the Voting Rights Act necessary. And again, mea culpa, I messed up. I messed up bad when I thought that nobody would try and dismantle the Voting Rights Act. The people who warned me then, and some pretty prominent people, but I'm not going to name them, but there were some pretty prominent people said, oh, you better get on board with this. And I said, nah, man, come on. They were right. I was wrong. So that fight, seemingly, is never going to end. Harriet mentioned the Republican debate. Now, let me be as brutally frank as I can without descending to obscenity, all right? The system for their choosing, Fox News is choosing, of who gets the top-tier debate and who gets the, quote, lower-tier debate sucks. It stinks. You know, they, they take a certain number of polls, national polls, and they average them all together. Never mind that the sample sizes were different. Never mind that the margins for error are all different. 
just lump them all in one bowl and then say, okay, these 10 are cool and the other seven, you got the early, the early time. And, you know, there's a part of me as someone who's not a Republican who can care less. I don't care. I don't care if Carly Fiorina's in the top tier or the lower tier. But you see, there may come a time when the party that I traditionally vote with has a large field like this. And I have said in years past that choosing candidates based on polling stinks. It stinks. I believe the fair thing to do, as I said to Harriet, put all 70. I mean, I didn't even know James Gilmore was in the race, but he is former governor of Virginia. I say put all their names in a hat and let them draw. And instead of doing it one group early and one group late, do them on consecutive days at the same time. That would be fair. So you throw George Pataki in the same group with Donald Trump. It's the luck of the draw. Trump ought to know about that. He owned all them casinos. (laughs) You shouldn't have any problem with that. You know, uh, Fox apparently, Fox News. And where else are they going to have a Republican debate but with Fox News? They have a decision desk. They, They sifted through five national polls, including, I might add, their own survey released late Monday. <laughs> so Fox News was in the game, too. But it is a game, y'all. This doesn't just empower the 10 people who are part of the, quote, main debate. It empowers the polls. It inflates their own sense of self-worth. And quite frankly, I don't know they're worth it. Not this far out. They got no business being used. I mean, I got to be honest. If I ran one of those polling outfits, I would jump up and say, no, don't use me for this. (laughs) No, make it four polls, not five. Use your own, but don't use me. Because I think there's something fundamentally flawed and undemocratic, I might add, in doing things this way. But hey, you know, uh, that's just me. Everybody else is going to do whatever it is they think they want to do. And uh, God love him. Um, I'm going to go a little bit out of sequence here because we're limited in time. There are a couple of stories I really want to get in. This has to do with journalists. Uh, And this is from, I believe, Think Progress. Exclusive. The restrictions journalists agreed to in order to attend the Koch Brothers Conference. They had a, a, a conference their Freedom Partners organization, hosted five Republican presidential hopefuls and hundreds of top conservative donors at the St. Regis Monarch Beach Luxury Resort in California. Now, leaving aside whatever strictures the journalists ended up agreeing to in terms of doing their job, you ought to ask yourself, you know, would all of them have agreed to it this quick? If instead of the St. Regis Monarch Beach in California, they were in a conference room someplace, maybe a big conference room, but a conference room someplace. See, because 
some of them, not all of the journalists, but I'm sure some of those journalists ended up staying at the same same Regis Monarch Beach. Trust me, not all of them, but some of them did. What a sweet gig. (laughs) What a really, really sweet gig. Now, here are the ground rules. Think Progress actually got a copy of these. Uh, And they were sent by Freedom Partners to the reporters who were covering. Media credentials will be given to those covering the event on site. These credentials must be prominently displayed. Credentials are non-transferable. Everybody does that. So it's, it's not, you know, that's no biggie. You've been invited to cover the program, general mood of the event, and interviews with program participants, elected officials, and leaders from each group represented at the seminar. The program is strictly pen and pad, which means if you were walking around with an iPhone trying to record anything, you were out of luck, uh, with the exception of the one-on-one policy leader discussions with Governors Bush and Walker and Senators Cruz and Rubio. Freedom Partners will also live stream the policy leader uh, discussions We'll work with you individually to meet any requests outside of these guidelines. Given the privacy rights of our members and other guests, you may not report on anyone's attendance at the event unless you are specifically granted an interview request or they are part of the formal program. You are to treat their attendance as off the record unless otherwise discussed and approved prior to an interview. Out of respect for all Event attendees, interview requests should only be made through the Freedom Partners communications team. Bet you they got some sweet money, too. And I guarantee you, they were staying at whatever luxury resort that was. Media will stay. Oh, no, they're going to be, they will stay off-site. So they they didn't get the sweet life on this one. Media will stay off-site and be granted access on-site during general program hours. We trust that you will abide by these ground rules. So, uh, Interesting. They all signed off on this. I, I was wrong about them staying at the luxury spot. Uh, that That's cool. They had to stay someplace else. Maybe a Holiday Inn Express or something. I don't know. Uh, Lee Har- Har- Horwich, managing editor for Government and Politics at USA Today, told Think Progress in an email that his paper, quote, decided on this event that it was better to be there than not given the enormous influence of Koch and his donors, noted that they were transparent in our coverage about the restrictions. So, you know, it's like, do you cover it under the guidelines or do you decide the guidelines might be a little hmm, obnoxious so you're not going to pop it? And most, most of the people that had the opportunity took advantage of the opportunity and signed off on this. Jeb Bush, you know, when when Republicans decide to jump on a bandwagon, and in this case, the bandwagon is the savaging of Planned Parenthood, uh, it can get ugly. Jeb Bush, uh, you know, sometimes politicians don't need to ad lib. I mean, Donald Trump may be able to get away with it because he'll just double down on whatever he said. Jeb Bush, on the other hand, was uh, trying to curry favor with religious conservatives. And this is how he did it. Quote, I'm not sure we need a half billion dollars in funding for women's health programs. If you took dollar for dollar, 
There are many extraordinarily fine organizations, community health organizations that exist, federally sponsored community health organizations to provide quality care for women on a wide variety of health issues. But abortion should not be funded by the government, any government in my mind. Now, uh, Planned Parenthood doesn't get funded for abortion. Does not. Doesn't matter. They'll say that they do. Planned Parenthood does not sell fetal tissue. Doesn't matter. Those videos by those clowns, who, by the way, have been elevated to a level of legitimate journalism, I assume, by all this, they managed to start this thing about, well, you know, they're selling body parts to the highest bidder. It's not what anybody said, but that's what Planned Parenthood ended up having to defend itself against. Now, Jeb Bush was moonwalking when he said, quote, with regards to women's health funding broadly, I misspoke as there are countless community health centers, rural clinics, and other women's health organizations that need to be fully funded. (sighs) Some people think this has killed this campaign. We'll see. By the way, and this is a good story to end this show off tonight. You remember the ag-gag law? Idaho had it. There's a couple other states that have it. It says that you cannot go on a farm or find employment on a farm in that state with an eye toward exposing animal cruelty or any of the other crap that goes on at many of these factory farms. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? A federal court on Monday found the ag-gag law in Idaho unconstitutional. just passed last year. So uh, hooray for that. At least we got something going on out here. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld, as always, for his great work. Stay tuned for all the great programming right here at the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.